Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Game of Thrones 2 Electric Buku. This week, my friend Arthur Jamfa is back to discuss Brand's first POV chapter in A Clash of Kings. Arthur joins us all the way from Taiwan. Today, we talk about the significance of the comet and Old Nan's wisdom, and we give Maester Lewin his job performance review. Then, after that, I give my official review of the first season of House of the Dragon. Okay, without further ado, here is my friend and yours, Arthur Jamfa. I guess I want to know if you had any like weird uh, neighbor's kid friends um, as a child. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is what Bran feels like to me. Bran feels like the weird kids and no one wants to play with him because he's no fun mm-hmm. and they try to play with him and then he just ends up howling like a wolf and he probably runs on all fours and we've all had a friend like this and uh yeah was that you really (laughs) um so i i I grew up in northern california and i grew Mm -hmm. up in an era where there were still actual hippies in california right they weren't just like people pretending to be hippies so yeah yeah, i grew up in a neighborhood with um a lot of neighborhood girls there were never any boys around and so, like, I had four sisters, and when I was little, I had no brothers, and then mm-hmm. there was, like, four or five neighbor girls, and there were there were two neighbor girls that lived a one-minute walk from our house, so we spent a lot of time with them, mm-hmm. and they were naked a lot, <laughs> and, you know, they were all, we were all little kids, um, and, you know, the climate was fine, you know, you could, you, you didn't have, it's not like it was an entire family of nudists, but I think it the idea was that, like, kids should run free and wild and clothing optional or whatever. So, yeah, there were, uh, there was a lot of nudity in the neighborhood. And I was not, I was not a, I was not a, a nude child. Um, <laughs> very often, very often. <laughs> But, you know, you can get a sense. You can get a sense that this is a a different kind of childhood than my children are growing up with, for sure. (laughs) So, I don't know. Does that answer your question? Does that help? No, I think that definitely answers my question. Yeah, I think think that's very... (laughs) That's very much the energy that we're talking about. I had had a friend in primary school. um, Yeah. uh, And he would uh, run in anime style in PE class. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so you put, you, what is you that? put his hand what is that? behind his back, like Naruto, uh-huh. and start running. And I and I don't think he did it like because he wanted to be cool. I think he did it uh-huh. because he watched so much anime. It, this is just the way he ran now. Um, <laughs> he thought this is how this is how you yeah. run with power. Right? This is this, this. He thought this is how you say bolt, but you know, <laughs> this is just technique. I have the right technique. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, so today we're looking at Bran's first POV chapter in Clash of Kings. Do you mm-hmm. read these chapters differently now that you know that Bran's going to end up on the Iron Throne? This is the main thing that I'm thinking about while I'm reading these. Um, yeah. and, um, and you know what? I'm going to say I, from, from the get go, I like Bran. I think he should be the king. Um, I know that's inflammatory, but that's what I think. And uh, I think reading these really convinced me uh, that uh, he's the rightful uh, rightful king by the end. Oh, interesting. Okay, so I read this chapter and thought, man, he is, he is an entitled little creature. He's causing, he, he's causing people to lose sleep. 
He's being very bratty. I mm-hmm. I feel at the end of this chapter, I'm feeling this this kid needs a mother or a father to discipline him. That's how I felt. Interesting. But I, of course, I'm a parent. Yes, I was laughing at the at him um, <laughs> screaming "ooh" in the face of Maester Lewin while he was being like, "Please stop!" I want oh, to sure, I, I was laughing too, for sure. But I, I was thinking, hmm, <laughs> I don't know if you're king material. I think you need a, you need some discipline, boy. I think that this could be a a chapter that doesn't age well in terms of what it delivers on a reread, because I think that initially. And if you had no show exposure and you're just reading this for the first time, mm-hmm. I think that you're given, you know, more evidence, a little bit more evidence that maybe Bran Stark is a ward mm-hmm. and maybe even a green seer, right? Right. But we know that, right? It's <laughs> sort of sort of like that reveal doesn't work on me the second time around as it does the first time around. So, does this chapter reward on reread? I thought it was really rewarding um, because I thought there's a lot of things that you miss because you're so focused about, oh, he actually is the wolf on the first Uh read. On the second read, you you see, I think you see a lot of themes uh, and a lot of things that you understand about Bran and who he is uh, and how he's so different from all the other kids. Um, that you right. don't see, I think, in the first time, and kind of the it it becomes less important the fact that he has a relationship uh, with the wolves, but it becomes more interesting to see the parallels between him and him and the wolves and why that matters because I think uh-huh. that's also a story being told here. Yeah, I think that's that, that's well said. Let me go ahead and read the synopsis here, and we'll jump yeah. right in. So Bran looks out of his window. And wishes he was a wolf. He hears the dire wolves howling and tries howling back. The beasts, it seems, annoy every person in Winterfell except Bran and Rickon. Bran is scolded for encouraging the howling and Maester Lewin tries to reason with him. Bran thinks about his brothers, his sisters, his parents, and the other dire wolves. He thinks about the comet. He thinks back to the day that Shaggy Dog ravaged one of the walders then he dreams in his dream he is a dire wolf trapped in the god's wood so arthur jamfa what do you bring to the table today we can talk about anything you want to talk about yeah uh, my question is uh is bran revealed as the wisest character in the series through this coming of age story <laughs> did you say the whitest <laughs> 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 uh is that a Freudian slip? <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you I thought I heard you say is he the whitest character? No. I'm I said he is he the wisest. <laughs> the wisest. Which is He may he may in fact be the whitest as well. <laughs> <laughs> They're all the way up up there in the north. Um Well he's he's not getting any tan. That's for sure. Um, is he the wisest? Mm. It's interesting because you know what he's he's now a prince, right? He's he's not a mm-hmm. lordling anymore. What is the job of a prince is to kind of gather all of the collective wisdom of all of your advisors and then try to judge which of you know which advice to follow yeah. or maybe not to follow any of the advice at all. And I think that that is kind of how he's presented in this chapter, like in terms of what the comet means. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's gathering information. Hmm. I know I'm supposed to listen to my maester. I'm not sure he has the right of it. I'm going to get get information from every source I can, but I don't feel like he's swayed by any one mm-hmm. of these advisors. And in the end, I think he tries to make up his own mind about things. Was that your sense? Yes, that was certainly my sense. I think that's that shows incredible wisdom for his young age. He's not mm. listening to the first the first sign of authority. He really goes and tries to connect knowledge from different people, which I've never heard of an eight year old doing in that way. Um, and then he goes back with when he gets new information about oh why the wolves howling. He mm-hmm. gets the comet from from Nan, and he goes 
he goes back to the other saying, so what's the comment mm. about? So he, he, he's, he's really trying to get into what's going on and listening to all his advisors and, you know, trying to ben benefit mm -hmm. from all the experience and knowledge around him. He, he's showing good judgment, surprising good judgment for his age. And yet he's keeping everyone awake at night. So and yet he's being a spoiled brat. <laughs> I, I, I was up, I was up five times last night, Arthur, with a new puppy who had the runs. Mm -hmm. And so I don't appreciate dogs who ruin my sleep. If I had a, an eight year old boy howling in the next room, I think I would, I might strangle, I might strangle the boy, in which case I would be just as bad as Damon Targaryen. I think we've proven you to be unable to be objective in this matter. Uh, no, I think you're right. I think he's, I don't know if he's the wisest. It's a good question. I looked at the definition of wise. Uh-huh. Because, um, and it's benefiting from great experience, which uh -huh. by the time he's this three-eyed um, crow, he certainly has a lot of experience because uh -huh. he has the whole history of man. Uh, knowledge, he has that as well. And good judgment, uh -huh. which we can argue about. And also, um, Socrates, as we know, says that true wisdom comes from each of us when we realize how little we understand about life ourselves and the world mm. around us. And he repeatedly shows that he knows that. Yeah. All right. Let me ask you this. Can you be wa both wise and have nefarious motives? Ooh. Because I think that there are people like Tywin who actually do have a lot of wisdom, but you can't trust them because they're always going to put themselves and their families first. I think that you might be able to say that like, Okay, Bran is the character who exhibits wisdom, but also kind of has a moral center. How do you feel about that? Okay, but I think morality is part of wisdom, and I think being immoral comes back to uh -huh. bite you in the butt, if you will. Um, and that's what happens to Tywin, right? The, the way that he treats his son is, I believe, unwise, and he comes to reap the reward. The, well, he doesn't reap the rewards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He gets punished for that behavior. So I think that that's... I think, yeah, I, he he's, he shows to be incredibly cunning, uh -huh. like maybe a fox would be in an old, an old tale. But he's not he's showing the wisdom of an owl. Interesting. Okay. All right. And I think... Brandis, okay, let me throw one more name at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, old Nan. Oof. Isn't, is she not the wisest person in the whole story? I mean, you've hit me in the feels there. I really like Old Nan. <laughs> I'm really attached to old man. Why Why are there old sages of the villages everywhere in every culture? Like, why is that a thing? And why is why is it the fact that if I look, at, have you ever looked at those like 30 second uh, documentaries where they show about like keepers of old traditions? No. And these are like traditions that are like thousands of years old. And these people are always like old. It's always like 70. And I'm always uh -huh. thinking, how come that's, because if these, these traditions are 7,000 years old, surely this isn't one generation old. So how come it's always the old person that's the only one the village left that has this knowledge? I'm, just, I'm always confused about. I mean, I think that the idea here is that, um, like, cultures that value elders, and I, I, mm. would, not con I would not consider uh, America a, a culture that does value elders, which mm -hmm. is unfortunate. Well, but, your president is an elder. Uh, he is. <laughs> for some reason, we do not value him. We make we make fun of him at every turn. That's true. So I think we're a culture that worships youth and almost universally disrespects elders. Um, yeah. And which I think is very unfortunate. But I think cultures that do value elders have to find value in what they bring to the table after their quote-unquote usefulness in the workforce is done, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're no longer quote-unquote useful to society, but you're still useful to us because you have seen more. You have, you have a longer view. You are a reservoir of wisdom, which might include old stories, right? Yeah. So that would be a way for a culture to continue to find a place for elders. Um, we don't need old people to tell stories anymore because we have Netflix. So I, I don't want to play all the uh, ills of society on Netflix, but I do think that we have robbed elders in my culture 
of one of their chief virtues, and that's that's that they they know the old stories, and yeah. and this is a you know Winterfell is supposed to be a very old culture, was which is supposed to value people like Nan. But here's the problem with Nan: Nan is continues to be valuable, but she's also a woman, and so when she tells stories to Bran, people just kind of shrug it off. That's true. So in other words. You got a, multiple old people in this story that are advising Bran, and of course, Lewin is always the one that's supposed to give him the best advice. Mm-hmm. But of course, Lewin has a very limited view of the world, whereas I think Nan is old and has the right of it. I think she's right about everything she says. So I don't know. I, I might say that I, that old Nan is the wisest, wisest person in the story. Yes, uh, no, I think I, I think you're correct. I, I I have to say I dismissed Nan because he's a commoner, which is typical of of a black. <laughs> um, they don't care if commoners are killed or disregarded. You know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, House of the Dragon categories bleeding into our reading of A Clash of Kings. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre. We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, (laughs) now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim. Order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar. Then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. I want to ask you a question, and I think I brought this up on a previous podcast, but now that I've kind of had some time to stew about it, mm-hmm. I'm I'm even more interested in this. This is the fourth chapter, uh, I mean fifth if you count the prologue. Um, yeah. This is the fifth chapter wherein we have multiple interpretations of the comet. Mm-hmm. And in this chapter alone, we get, you know, we get the, you know, the Septon says it's the sword that slays the season. And Bran thinks, mm-hmm. oh, that, that makes sense because the seasons are turning. Old Nan says dragons. Asha says uh, blood and fire and nothing sweet, boy. Mm-hmm. Does the comet bring the magic? Does it foretell the magic? Or does it have nothing to do with the magic? I think it has um, everything to do with the magic in this case. I mean, I, I mean, 
if we're going to get more meta, I think um, it's a running theme that's being used uh, for continuity. Yeah, by the author here, Martin. But I think I think it, it yeah, I think it, it carries with it all the themes um, that we find in the class of kings, right? Kind of that unsettled nature of mm-hmm. themes of danger and death mm-hmm. um, and chaos um, and kind of just the lo- the looming war. Mm. Uh, that's coming and that's uh, and going that's kind of portrayed through all of our chapters and all the characters that we're thinking about as they come to uh look at that i mean that is how the the book starts right with the interpretation mm. of the comet about dragonstone but in a way i think it we also it also is is a way to tie danny's story with the rest of yeah. what we know because i yeah. think for now there was no link and i think this is the first time that we see quite physically that this is the same world I think you're totally right. In terms of the sort of the literary continuity, that's absolutely mm-hmm. what the comet does. I will say though that I'm I have a chicken and egg problem with this thing. Right. Mm-hmm. I think I've always interpreted it as okay, dragons have been reintroduced to the world, mm-hmm. and on the surface. And and you do have a few voices in the narrative that say, okay, now that dragons are in, back in the world, like fire magic of all kinds has been enhanced, right? You know, like, right. you know, Thoris is able to bring people back from the dead. And of course, the pyromancers are able to uh, do their work much more effectively. I think in general, my thought was, because everyone in the world was telling me this, is that dragons kind of enhance magic globally. Oh, interesting. But I'm starting to wonder if maybe the comet does something magical. So the comet was introduced in a brand chapter. Maester Lewin saw the comet for the first time in the in the previous book. And mm. it was several chapters before dragons were hatched. Ooh, I did not remember that. Maybe we have a repeat comet a comet that comes about once every 900 years. I don't need, I don't know. Something like that. And every single time the comet comes, you have the opportunities for dragons to reemerge. And then the comet actually enhances all of the fire magic throughout the, 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 the world. Well, I think, I mean, there is a strong correlation in the sense that from now on, there's going to be a lot of magic in this world that was essentially magicless before the comet. Yeah, that's right. Um, but on the other hand, I would say that kind of relies on the theory that, you know, Maesters claim that the age of magic was when the dragons were about. And when the dragons uh-huh. died, the magic was yeah, gone. Yeah. But then I watched House of the Dragons and I had lots of dragons and basically no magic. Right. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, yeah. I feel like, okay, so the one thing, the, one of the first things we know about this world is that the seasons are magical, right? So. The mm-hmm. seasons don't function the way that normal seasons do. And so everything is in this big cycle. And the cycle is irregular. Like, there's no telling how the cycles will work. And I'm wondering if there's some kind of celestial governor for this thing. It's like, maybe like, you know, in ancient Valeria, they were messing with fire magic, and it just so happened to correspond with this comet being close by. But then the comet went away for a long time, and this is why the dragons died out. And then, of course, the comet's going to come back, and so you're going to see a, a rebirth of the dragons. But then all of the other fire magic is going to increase as well. I don't know whether the comet foreshadows the fire magic or if it causes the fire magic. Well, perhaps you need the comet for the fire magic. So I think, yeah, I think I, I would agree with you. Because I, I think the people that we need to listen to in the Winterfell are the people that have connections to the old wise mm. wisdom. Yeah, Asha and times. Old Dan, right? Right, Asha and Old Dan. And they say fire and blood, mm-hmm. nothing sweet, and dragons. So, yeah, I guess that would make sense. Although, I don't know where the dragons would come from logically, right? Because dragons just existed. They didn't, I mean, Sure, they might have appeared back in the day, a long, 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 long time ago. But what we know is that dra- dragons existed, and then... And most of the dragons died... Yeah, most of the dragons died... During the Doom, right? During the Doom of Valeria. And then 
eventually the dragons died out in Westeros when the Targaryens fled the Doom of Valeria with a few dragons. Um, so I don't know how you would say, oh, here's a comet that means some dragons are coming. I don't see how that would make sense. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's magic. I mean, that's. I think at the end of the day, it's like, it's whatever. It's whatever Martin wants to do in the end with this business. Yes. Um, it, no, of course. The, I I think I've always read the comet in the way that you've read the comet. Like, it's kind of a, a a cool little trick that Martin has played at the beginning of this book to tie all these stories together. So all of a sudden, we have someone way up at Winterfell talking about dragons. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder whether the comet isn't doesn't serve some kind of sci-fi ish purpose for this story. Okay, so so here's an, here's another suggestion. We don't know what woke up the the army of the north. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or White Walkers. Uh huh. Um, what if it was the comet? Yeah, we see we see the others in the prologue of the first chapter, right? That's true. They already wake. But then up. the question is, like, of course, the comet is approaching. <laughs> That's, I mean, listen, I know about ast- astrology, <laughs> and by that I mean astronomy. But yeah. <laughs> that shows the extent of my knowledge. Really. Certainly, someone on Reddit has has worked this all out and can correct us if if we're getting anything wrong. Um. <laughs> so no, I, I I do wonder. I do wonder if we have a. A causation issue with the comet, um, yeah. But yeah, I think I in think, in ancient world in the ancient worlds and stories, you often have celestial doings that foretell the coming of some great figure or some mm-hmm. great event. Right? That's that's pretty typical for the ancient mindset. Yes. Um, so I, I I've always it could just be that it could just be like. Yep, dragons have re-entered the world, and um, the gods are giving you a sign about it. Uh, but of course, we we know that Martin wants to play coy with, you know, whether these gods really exist or not. Yeah, and I think it comes to it also comes to disturb everything in the world. So that would to me indicate that it it has a causative effect the other way. That it's, mm-hmm. that it's coming to. Because I mean, the wolves are reacted to the. Co- it's not like the wolves are howling, and then the comet turns up. But yeah, who knows? Can I talk about how how much of an ex- enclosed space this chapter is? It feels really claustrophobic. Yes, that I think that's the main feeling from this this chapter, and it also to me feels very liminal. Um, Brian, I think to me is in very liminal space. Interesting. Um, the word that I learned from you. Um, well, he's at. I, I absolutely he is. In fact, we were introduced to him. He's sitting in a windowsill, right? Mm-hmm. So, right. so there he is. He's he's on the cusp. You know, he's in between two spaces, and um, and you kind of see him in between. You know, you and then it sort of ends with his dream state, right? So, and, which is also and, kind of, kind of a liminal space in a way. And it's a it's a coming of age story, right? Which mm-hmm. is by definition liminal. He's also teetering between the human and the animal, because you know he's a human who is shouting with the wolves or howling with the wolves. Mm-hmm. Uh, he becomes a wolf at night. But also, I think it's really interesting to see how he's at sometimes he's very adult, right? So the children at one point are playing and having fun, and there's a there's a lot of mention of laughter, and they're yes. playing with games, and he's thinking, I just I wish I could beat them up and made them stop laughing um <laughs> yeah. which is not very childlike right he, he doesn't like the child play but then he's really immature right. in his dealings with the maester and so there is a sense in the way well that, but he's also very t- childish when he's like howling and yeah hey in hayhead's face exactly uh exactly. but of course if you have the name hayhead you're not going <laughs> to get any respect from anyone <laughs> you know? Well, that's, that's the least respectful name Martin gave any character in this whole story. Hayhead. <laughs> yeah, that's um, from, I mean, he really ran out of names there. He was like, well, "I'm going to call it I, dude, face, high face, hello face, Hayhead." Right, 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 right. So, all right, yeah, he's being very childlike, and yet he's kind of being forced into this position as prince, yeah. where he's almost. 
he's almost forced to supervise the children. You know, he mm-hmm. he's not allowed to play with them. He just he's there to observe what the children are, are doing, right? And and so I think on the one way Mata makes us feel uncomfortable because he keeps reminding us that he's like kind of in between two positions and uh-huh. wherever he goes. I mean, we've all been in that position somewhat sometime in our lives when we think, oh, our friends are doing some immature games. I feel like I've moved on from this. And then you feel like oh, all these adult things actually also suck and I don't want to do that either. Uh-huh. And you know, you're, you're that coming of age moment when you really um, feel uncomfortable a bit everywhere. Um, but he, it also feels like he's he's stuck in the in the space that he's in. He, he he's stuck because he's stuck in the role of being a prince and having to take care of the castle, mm. where he doesn't take care of it. But he's stuck in in that role that he doesn't want to be in. He's also stuck in the walls because it's not safe anymore because the wall yeah. he can't leave. And I mean, yeah. if you if you look at the the start of the chapter, if I can if I can read the start and the end, yeah, do uh, that because they're both the most cla- cla- claustrophobic moment, which I think is telling. So the start is. Um, Bran preferred the hard stone of the window seat to the comforts of his feather bed and blankets. A bed, the walls pressed close and the ceiling hung heavy above him. Mm-hmm. A bed, the room was his cell and Winterfell his prison. Yet outside his window, the wide world is still cold. And then you get to the end of the chapter and it's the world, ha- and it's talking about the walls. And it says, the world has tightened around them. But beyond the walled wood still stood the great gray caves of Mad Rock. Winterfell, he remembered, the sound coming to him suddenly. Beyond its sky-tall man-cliff, the true world was calling, and mm-hmm. he knew he must answer or die. So we start with the point of view of Bran. We end with the point of view of the wolf. And both of them are really stuck where they are. It's, it's a really claustrophobic chapter because you, you start in that space and you end in that space and you really feel like, Whatever Bran does, even when he's meant to escape in the wolves and be able to roam, he can't. Um, right. And in this way, he mirrors the wolf's experience. I think you could say that the wolf's primary concern, in this case, we're talking about Summer, right? Hmm. Summer's primary concern is, how do I get out of this stone man cave, meaning Winterfell, and get out into the woods where I can hunt? Because that's freedom, mm-hmm. that's food, you know, that's that's where wolves belong, which the kennel master absolutely calls out as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, Bran feels the same way, and you could just attribute that to the fact that his disability has limited his mobility. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, he's internalized the, the feeling of being trapped, right? So... Mm-hmm. So he's a mirror. He reflects the feeling of the wolves. And I think it's, it's to me, it felt like a very refreshing take on on disability and on uh, coming of age. Hmm. That instead of being something that's chaotic and over the place, it's actually something a bit suffocating, hmm. um, which I think reflects a bit more closely an experience of coming of age, at least in my opinion. And, and also... To talk more about the wolves, I think I, you 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 talked about Maester Anthony's rules about dragons. Right? Yeah. One of your arguments within those was that sure the dragons are controlled by the people, the dragon riders. Yeah. Uh, but also the the dragon riders become more like dragons. Um, and I think here in this mythical creature that's that is a direwolf, maybe we're seeing the same thing, right? Maybe the Stark children, when they spend a lot of time with the wolves, are also becoming more like the wolves. I think uh, so. I think we see that with um, Rickon, right? Rickon mm-hmm. has become feral because his, his will is not imposing on Shaggy Dog as much as Shaggy Dog's will is being impo- imposing on Rickon. And I think eventually, if, if the show is any indication, Bran will become a little bit Treeish, you know he's he's more tree like at the end than he was before. Uh, so there is yes, there I think that there is something about that in Martin's world. It's like there's consequences to merging or occupying an animal body, and I think that uh, I think we meet that we meet a few wargs in the later books who kind of give voice to that. Mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, I think that there's something about that um, for sure. Um, I want to ask you a different kind of question. Of course. Although, can I can I ask actually? Yeah, yeah. Do that. Can I ask one more question? Because I yeah, yeah. the one one question is not answered, which is why are the direwolves howling in the first place? Um, and I want to to know what you thought. I mean, I think that the what's the kennel master's name, Farlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Farlin has the right of it. He, you know, these beasts are not meant to be caged. I mean, that, mm-hmm. I think that the, the the chapter is trying to tell us this, um, and it could also be trying to tell us that Bran shouldn't be caged. Uh, but you know, these beasts are they used to be they're pack animals. They used to be have a, a larger pack. They've gotten too big for Winterfell, um, and they should just be let out. They should be led into the wolf's wood or whatever to hunt and be free and, you know, go roam. And, you know, if they come back, they come back. I think that's the the right thing to do with them, not to, like, mm-hmm. trap them within the god's wood. I think that's probably what the howling is all about. You nice. think it's it's something more... More magic. Magical. More magical. Well, you know what? I think we've established that old man is the wisest. Uh-huh. Um, and she says it's the comet. So I'm going to have to defer to the Socrates oh. of the, oh. of the <laughs> Westeros. All right. I missed that. No, I think that, that you absolutely listen to old man whenever she's talking. Exactly. For sure. Okay. Almost uh, parlaying from the statement I just made. Does Mr. Lewin... Does he just suck? And specifically, I'm thinking as far as like a caretaker. Like, is he is he raising Bran correctly? No, I mean, clearly not. And he's also a bad maester. I mean, what he's saying? <laughs> he's just does he has a Valyrian steel thing? Because I don't, I don't know. I, I know that I noticed that his his chain is very tight around his neck. That's true. That's a good spot. I remember reading that, but yeah, that must mean he's not very smart. Because surely the more the more rings you have, the yeah, more, he yeah. he basically just made it out of the citadel. <laughs> he eked by, so yeah, I that's would pass. Not... That's the equivalent of a degree that says pass, really. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, I just feel like Bran Bran needs adventure. He needs, and of course, of course, you have to put people around him that are going to protect him right mm-hmm. but you absolutely need to get him on that s- saddle that Tyrion suggested you need to get him out hunting boar and deer and having adventures in the wolf's wood and you just put 20 armed guard around him or something like that but you gotta you gotta get that guy out of the windowsill man oh no for sure this you've, is no way got... to live a life or at least, or at least let, let the wolves go, and then he'll walk into one of the wolves, and then he'll be free that <laughs> sure, way. Sure. You know? sure. Of course, you know, Lewin disbelieves all that. I think I just think that Lewin ought to, I, I think Lewin views Bran as, okay, you're a prince now, you're the most valuable asset around, we're going to keep you safe, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you under lock and key, because we can't lose you. Yeah, you don't be left with the Rickon in charge. <laughs> Rickon would be a nightmare. <laughs> uh, Rickon would be a nightmare yeah, I think, for sure. I, I think it's also that he doesn't... You know when um, children, children differently than the parents' children? And then they just cannot understand that? Um, and then Say that again? They just, when, when children are children in a very different way that their parents were children and their oh, caretakers sure, sure, were sure. children and they yeah. just can't understand that they they are a child but the thing that they want to do is different than what you want to do as a child right so maybe maester lewin was a very bookish child or something well i think maester lewin liked to play the i'm standing in front of a puddle and i'm saying some words and i get pushed in if i say the wrong words kind of game i think he'd get along with the with the, with the walders the walder phrase oh interesting um, huh and i think he's just assuming you know, as eventually the prince will get along with these, these children and he'll have some fun. But I think Bran is, is unfortunately, he's a bit too, too traumatized for that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, 
All right. So yeah, I think there's something about there's something about having a prince in the castle that could make you go one or two directions, and I think that a lot of characters in the story have a different view on this. Mm-hmm. I think on the on the on the extreme of this is like Lady Lysa. She's like, I've got this little lordling. I'm going to mother him. I'm going to keep him safe because he's the future of the house. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of it, if this if this person's the future of our house, we have to make a man out of him. And in that sense, I mean, man has a kind of a masculine connotation, but I mean, like, we need to make him like an authentic human. Yes. And that means we have to send him out into the world. He's got to be fostered at some other place, some other castle. He's got to, you know, hunt and make good friendships. And uh, we can't have people coddling him the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, I think, I think Lewin has the former opinion. Like, this is our political asset. We keep him close. Whereas I think someone like Ned would be like, let the boy have adventures. We have to give him an authentic childhood if he's going to be a good leader. That's my sense of it anyway. Mm-hmm. No, I think you're correct. I think we may be, um, people might write in and say we're, being, we're acting with hindsight. Yeah, of course. Because we know, obviously, that everyone else is going to die. And, Which we yeah, are. <laughs> but he'll have to technically inherit the house as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he's, he is the heir apparent at this point. I mean, he is the heir, but he's not the one who we assume is going to become king of the north or lord. Well, of the yeah, no, because because we have Rob, right? But even with Rob, it's like, what are Rob's chances? Uh, I mean, you you want to think that he's, but he's he's a boy. He's a boy at war. I mean, geez, that's true. He's this guy does not have good life insurance. Um, that's a good point. Well, okay. Uh, notable introductions in this chapter. Um, we meet the Walders, big and little Walder, for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been a few few folks, uh, you know, like Hayhead. Uh, there's no notable departures that I saw, but I did notice th- a couple differences here. In the show, Asha is given the 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 line that the comet equals dragons. Mm. Um, whereas old Nan gets it in this, in in the in the chapter, so that was notable. And then, of course, we already mentioned that Lewin's chain is it's not flowing and loose; it's very tight. So mm. That's a, a show difference for sure. Although show Lewin still sucks. <laughs> show Lewin still sucks for sure. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think Lewin. I think we've established Lewin just sucks. He's, he's a bad caregiver. He's a bad maester. Do you think they give the bad maesters to Winterfell? They just send them north. I do think that there's a sense that in the south, it's like nothing that really happens up north really matters. It's like the mm. edge of it's like the edge of the world up there. Um, yeah. It's it's like what you know. It's it's what Americans think about what's going on in Canada or something like that. Right, 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 right. Um, I'm not going to make such comments. <laughs> I mean. I've lived in both countries. I think that everyone knows that this is generally what the Americans think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe Lewin gets gets foisted upon Winterfell because people don't think he's great, and they don't think that Winterfell matters. Yeah, and you know, in Lewin's defense, he ends up being a very sound guy. He ends up doing the right things. I think. I, I, um, I think he's a generally good guy. I just think he's not great at his job. Yeah, I, I I I would tend to agree. Um, I think you've missed out on some notable introductions uh, oh, because you were introduced to some notable games, um, rats and cats, <laughs> yeah, and monsters and maidens, the old classic as we all know it. The old classic. You know, I'd like to be the maiden. Mm, monsters interesting. And, and we had to come into my castle. Which... Yeah, I want you to know that all of these function as role playing games in my bedroom. Oh, I see. (laughs) (laughs) And now Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. Uh, Bran has a wolf dream. He does, as, you know, as young boys do. Right, yeah. I mean, would you rather have a wolf dream or a wet dream? Are they mutually exclusive? (laughs) 
I don't know. I don't know the rules on this one. <laughs> That's the thing about a wet dream. There are no rules. It just you think you know what's gonna happen. <laughs> I mean, I had a wet dream and I was dreaming I was pooping. So you 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 break that one apart, Doctor Freud. Uh, well, the poop and the comet sort of serve the same function in this particular case, I think. <laughs> <laughs> For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'd like to offer my review of House of the Dragon Season 1. So, I've had a few guests mention to me that House of the Dragon was reviewed poorly by critics, and these reviews were simply not on my radar, so I decided to look these up. I will note, before I say anything else, the first thing I noticed was that Rotten Tomatoes' critic score is over 90%, and I think this means very little because it's Rotten Tomatoes, but but it's relevant to me in so much as the critic score is over 10% higher than the audience rating. So again, these numbers are mostly meaningless, but it seems that most so-called critics did indeed like the show, and many were not simply following the lead of the vocal minority of lamenting voices on the internet. My friend Stephanie noted that Mike Hale's review in the New York Times uh, was one of these poor reviews. So I looked it up. Hale is less than impressed by this show, which, you know, of course, that it's, his opinion is his own. But I'll note a few things that he said about it, take issue of some of them, and agree with others. He noted that the drama was mostly around tables. He says it fails to engage as a legitimate drama, and it featured flat characters. So there is certainly truth to the first part. Most of this drama is indeed conversation, and it's conversation-driven, and most of that conversation happens indoors or in a walled garden. So I generally agree that the show should have been more adventurous, but I've never heard this criticism before of any other film or show. I never cared if the West Wing or Downton Abbey or Seinfeld or ER mostly took place inside. So why do I care that House of the Dragon was mostly enclosed? I think this might be a twofold problem. The first one, of course, relates to the first series. The first series, Game of Thrones, was expansive. It was ambitious. It was like Indiana Jones at times. And it had travel narratives. It was out on the road. It was, in my opinion, the best ensemble television show ever made. And even if you disagree on that point, it is certainly the best fantasy drama ever filmed. So, of course, one series is going to be measured against the other. Secondly, fantasy shows are usually adventurous. They usually involve meeting a magic woman in the woods or meeting a troll in a cave or something like that. This show was only fantasy in that it had dragons. But most of the dragons we met had this veneer of domesticity. So I will admit that I did miss the more swashbuckling elements that I had been anticipating. But once I recognized what the series really was, I was able to move beyond my expectations and enjoy it on its own merits. So I wonder... And I hope you followed me on this point. I wonder if it's worth resetting expectations after season one. So let's start with the simple genre question. Is this a fantasy story? My sense is that it's not. I think it's primarily a political drama with fantasy on the fringes. This, of course, could change in season two. But my guess is that even if they introduce more magic... The heart of the show will still be politics. And so I think we should be measuring this against shows like The West Wing or Malcolm X or The Godfather. I think that those are the kinds of things that we should be looking at as we recalibrate our compass. Maybe it's impossible to stop measuring it against the original series, but I really think that this show has different aspirations, and I want to call that out. Over at Double Dragon, subscribe, rate, review. I mentioned to Steve that I was worried before the premiere that Hot D would try to outdo Game of Thrones by going bigger 
instead of going deeper. All right. So what do I mean by that? Bigger would be like bigger explosions or bigger dragons or bigger castles or, you know, more violence or more sex or something like that. I wanted to see deeper. I want complex and conflicted characters. I want to see the heart of a person at war with itself. I want to see good knights in a moral fork. I want to see rogues become heroic. That's kind of what I look for in a Martin story. And this show gave me all of the above. It didn't happen on a global scale like the first series did, but it narrowed in on Viserys in surprising and satisfying ways. In fact, even Hale's negative commentary conceded on this point. He writes, and I quote, Constantine perfectly captures the compassion, jealousy, and hesitance of a character whose actual and perceived weaknesses underline every move of the plot. I couldn't have said it better. Fantastic writing. Well done, Mike Hale. Then he says, whenever he's on stage, the mock Shakespearean theatrics of Martin's fantasy morph into actual drama. All right. Aside from the faint praise at the end, I totally agree with this reading of Viserys. Viserys was more interesting than Ned Stark ever was. He's more complex than Jon Snow ever was. Even in the episodes where he's trapped and spinning his wheels in place, these were fascinating. Viserys' immobility was interesting in ways that far surpassed Danny's claustrophobic sojourn in Marine. Yes, this show gave us a few flat characters, but how can I criticize a drama that showcased one of the finest performances I've ever seen on television? So, House of the Dragon wasn't perfect, but none of the flaws made it less compelling in the end. It was appointment television from start to finish. Very few shows can boast this. And that is all for this week. <laughs>